G'day, g'day, guys. Now, before we dive into today's show, I want to ask you a few quick questions. Are you looking to take your investing career to the next level? Are you wanting an accountability partner who will push you to achieve your goals? Are you needing to surround yourself with successful investors and entrepreneurs in order to up your game and take control of your life? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I am super pumped and excited to announce that I'm starting the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. This mastermind is a group of highly motivated, abundance-orientated, hand-selected hustlers and entrepreneurs who are ready to take that next step in their investing career. We are now taking applications for the next group of champions. If you're interested to find out more, then email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com and put in the subject line, The Syndicator Incubator. Being a part of this mastermind group, you will have unlimited access to both myself and my business partner, Andrew Campbell, and you will understand how we have been able to build a portfolio of over 1,200 units worth over $120 million in under 24 months, and we've achieved financial freedom in the process. There are once a month mastermind calls with the group and a yearly conference where you will learn from the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? There are only limited spots, so get your application pack by emailing me at info at reedgoosens.com. And remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. The, the Jobs Act has been a resounding success. So that's the let's set the scene with that. And that's not a party, party political broadcast. That is, you know, it is a fact. So if you look at the amount of capital that has been raised through online platforms that have been facilitated by changes in regulations that have come about from the Jobs Act, uh, billions of dollars have been invested that otherwise may not have been uh, uh, invested. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately created extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, 
show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play. But you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. show, I have the pleasure of welcoming back a good friend of the podcast, Matthew Sullivan. Now, Matthew was first on the show way back in 2016, episode number just 24, and we're at over 250 episodes now. So he's been, he was a veteran of the Investing in the US podcast all those years ago, and a lot has happened since then. Um, but for those of you who don't know who Matthew is, let me reintroduce you to him. Uh, Matthew, like me, is an expat, and he's originally from England, and he's now making a ton of waves here in the United States. He is the founder and full-time CEO of Quantum RE, as well as the founder of CrowdVenture.com and the co-founder of Two Real Estate Funds. He spent a number of years working alongside Mr. Richard, or I should say Sir Richard Branson, uh, at the Virgin Corporate Financing Team in London, United Kingdom, where he was appointed as the Director and Trustee of Virgin London's Air Ambulance. To top it all off, Matthew is the author of Head First, A Roadmap for Entrepreneurs. He's the host of the Hooked on Startups podcast, and he holds a private helicopter license. You could call him James Bond. I'm really excited to welcome him back to the show, but enough of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Matthew. Welcome back. How are you doing today, mate? Very well. Thank you so much for that introduction. Of course, you realize that none of that is about me. I just, <laughs> you know, I just thought I'd better write something interesting on these sort of introductions. So, um, you know, I have to learn to fly a helicopter now, obviously. I know, I know. Well, but, but we had you on so many, like so many years ago and it was good. It's, you know, you were a local resident here in Southern California. Um, so maybe you want to give, a, give the listeners a bit of an update on where you are today well i think a lot of uh thankfully a lot of forward momentum momentum so um i came to the u.s about seven years ago which i think probably about the same time as correct um around the same time as you actually um and really interesting to see the difference between you know london which is where i was before and uh, los angeles in terms of uh, the approach to business so the one thing that really was astonishing was just how open uh, and sharing everybody was and how you know everyone would um, talk about their ideas and their, their and we met at one of the meetup groups that you um, originated in in LA so um, so I really sort of cut my teeth very quickly um, back then with CrowdVenture which was one of the very first um, real estate crowdfunding companies and what that did is that really um, gave me a, um, you know, the the instant sort of uh, whistle stop tour of crowdfunding, online finance platforms, um, securities regulations about what you can and cannot do in terms of private placements. But it also enabled me to um, find some fantastic real estate partners that I still work very very closely with today. Um, and so since then, which was almost, you know, sort of several hundred years ago, it feels like now, <laughs> um, I came across um, a real estate asset class um, as I was, you know, building these companies. And that asset class is um, a, a huge $18 trillion untapped, which is always really exciting, which is the equity in single family homes. Um, so then I sort of became you know, about three years, four years ago, I started becoming obsessed by 
this asset class because I felt I'd sort of discovered, uh, you know, the, you know, the, 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 this, this, you know, in, incredible thing. And I did, I, a, I didn't want to tell anyone about it, but B, um, you know, I wanted to try and build the business. But so since then, I've really just been um, pretty much fixated on what has become Quantum RE, um, which is this company that now helps homeowners unlock their home equity without taking on more debt. And I'm sorry, that was an incredibly long answer to a very simple, short question. That's, sorry. That, no, no, don't, don't, don't apologize. And I want to get into Quantum RE and the evolution of this business. But I know when we had you on the show back in episode, way back in episode 24, which was all about the Jobs Act um, yeah. in 2012. Maybe let's start there for the, today's conversation because a lot has changed, right? Um, when, when we first met, uh, I don't know, probably 2014, I think we probably first met. Yeah, but, yeah. We, there was a massive flash in the pan of a lot of online crowdfunding sites. It seems from the outsider's point of view that a lot have come and failed uh, at the death of, of online crowdfunding. Maybe can you walk us through what's the evolution been since 2012 and that, that Jobs Act and the rush to market of all these crowdfunding websites and maybe who's left, um, you know, who are the big players left in the, in, in the space these days? Great. Well, I think, first of all, the, the Jobs Act has been a resounding success. So that's the, let's set the scene with that. And that's not a party, party political broadcast. That is, you know, it is a fact. So if you look at the amount of capital that has been raised through online platforms that have been facilitated by changes in regulations that have come about from the Jobs Act, uh, billions of dollars have been invested that otherwise may not have been uh, uh, invested. Um, what you are referring to um, is completely correct which is this life cycle of businesses that have come and gone, um, not necessarily in the wake of the Jobs Act, but companies that were set, that, that set themselves up um, hoping to become successful because of the changes in the Jobs, Jobs Act, but, but just didn't make it for a number of different reasons. Um, and raising money is incredibly difficult. Um, and, <laughs> and we all know that. And, and speaking as a as one of the companies, uh, I mean, CrowdVenture, I, I, that was a stepping stone for me. So that uh, it's still there. We still do a small amount of business. But um, that was something that really was incredibly useful to me because it helped introduce me to, as I said earlier, how the legislation works, who the people are. And, and it gave me this ability to just get started. And as every entrepreneur knows, if you want to get started in a, in a business, if you want to do something, then the best thing to do is just to get the shovel dirty. So for me, that was the way to, to you know, stick my flag in the ground. Got all of these incredible cliches I'm coming out with. You have to <laughs> cut them out in the edits. Um, but, but so the Jobs Act's been a, a success. So just the, the, the round robin of the Jobs Act. First of all, um, Regulation 506C, which is um, Regulation Rule 506C, rather, which enables you to publicly advertise private placements. So that was the first major step. And that enabled private placements that previously you could only discuss to people with whom you had a prior existing relationship. You were then able to advertise them to the world and his wife. And that's the first major step. And obviously, there were some um, implications. You had to make sure that you could prove as you still do, that the investors are accredited. Uh, the next iteration was um, 
I think we're still you know, waiting to see the full implications, the full positive implications. But the next iteration was Regulation A+. And Regulation A+, enables you to raise up to $50 million a year from an unlimited number of accredited and non-accredited investors. So that's a really useful, useful entity. Um, and Regulation CF, or Regulation Crowdfunding, was the final piece. And that really gave birth to um, all of the crowdfunding sites like uh, Republic and um, all of those other companies that enable you to buy into potentially really exciting um, startups with as, you know, as little as $100. So all of these um, changes have uh, stimulated capital um, and have enabled people that otherwise wouldn't have been able to invest. It's really opened up the market. And people talk about democratizing uh, investment, which I think is, is a very overused term. But what these platforms have done is create the ability for someone sitting at their armchair you know, on a Saturday afternoon to get access to deals primarily real estate, um, but other all sorts of other deals that they wouldn't have been able to get access to. So it has been, I think, a resounding success. There have been failures along the way, but there are failures in any sort of you know, new sure. business. If you look at cryptocurrency, for example, the, the rise and fall of the ICO market. So the, the normal distribution curve, I think, applies certainly to, to crowdfunding. But you know, ultimately, uh, you know, there are huge benefits, huge long-lasting benefits. Right. And, and I, I want to definitely tip of the hat to the disruption that what, what the Jobs Act has done to the access to the average American and, and not just African American, worldwide crowdfunding is now a massive platform across the world for different projects specifically related to real estate. But but it has been such a huge shift in the way you know, people could access deals, right? And then that that thesis is working out and it's playing out correctly in, in, in real life. Now, I mentioned earlier the, the nuances of some you know, crowdfunding platforms, a lot like a big rush to market and everyone thinks they're going to be able to capitalize on this. But, but to your point you said before is that raising capital is tough. So maybe yeah. you want to talk about some of the lessons you've learned in that raising capital process and why, and I don't want to harp on the failures, but why is it tough to get an online crowdfunding platform together in order to create maybe is it trust transparency or is it still the very mano e mano? You know, as an outsider, sort of as an operator, we've tried to use crowdfunding websites that haven't really worked in our favor. And we sort of boil it down to the fact of relationships. You know, they just didn't know enough about us, right, as, as an well, operator. So, so what, what's, your, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think crowdfunding really has a number of different components. So first of all, you have the technology. So you have the actual platform itself. So the platform is a web-based um, ability for someone to go and view something and buy something. Now, um, there are many other different platforms. There are non-investment platforms. There are platforms that enable you to buy stuff, you know, Amazon, for example. So, But the reason you go to Amazon as opposed to somewhere else is because of the brand identity. Now, we, we, so... Even though you've got what crowdfunding legislation, what the, the Jobs Act enabled us to do, was enabled these platforms to operate in a, um, an, in a legal and uh, regulatory compliant way. What, they, what the Jobs Act didn't solve was the problem of well, where do you get the investors from? Mm. So the reason that most of these platforms failed is because if you use the expression, if they build it, they will come, or if you build it, they will come. What happens is you build it, and they don't come because, <laughs> because you know, finding investors is all about marketing. It's all about getting people to go to your website, navigate through your, um, you know, your, 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 your systems and to have the confidence and the trust 
in both the platform itself and the investments that are on it to be able to part with your money. So the challenges are no greater than um, you know any other sort of en- uh, you know consumer facing online product because you've got the technology challenge, you have the regulatory challenge. Oh, and by the way, you have the most enormous challenge, which is getting people to use it. So if you use the crowdfunding sites in the expectation that by putting your deal on the site, that that would unlock loads of capital. The reason it fails is because the relationships weren't there in the first place with the crowdfunding company. Um, And many of these companies started off um, really just as a portal to to give you a technological solution. So if you had a network, you could use this portal or this technology to enable those people to see your deals and to buy fractions of them. Um, But the reason we see today a handful of crowdfunding sites um, is because of of that uh, natural wastage. But the sites that are available today have been hugely successful. You know, Realty Mogul um, and uh, Peer Street and Crowd Street and uh, you know Alpha Flow, for example. That these are all new platforms that are um, unlocking these markets because it's making making it much more accessible. And and my final point is, you know, the Jobs Act is only a few years old, so we're trying to expect that this is an immediate overnight success but i think as time goes by and as we move from one generation to the next the next generation are going to be much more used to looking for investments and looking for transactions online so we will continue to see year-on-year increases in the amount of capital that is invested to the point where it will become the natural way of raising money uh, as opposed to the traditional mano a mano uh, private placements no i, I completely agree and, and, and <clears throat> relationships 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 coupled with i remember you telling me one day and I'm, all these things sort of thoughts and memories are coming back after conversations i've had with you both, both in person and on the last podcast was that when starting a crowdfunding platform it really is a bunch of marketing dollars you've got to out- deploy in to, to, to create that relationship, to create that trust. Because without that, you're just another website, right? You, you, you know, like Amazon, you how quickly you get to people trusting you is through education uh, and is through that buying of their trust, so the, 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 the touches online, to be in front of them constantly, 24-7. And the, the companies that had that staying power i.e. the Amazons of the world that can, you know, they, they buy the, the top of mind when you think about buying stuff online. On the real estate um, syndication side, on, on the crowdfunding side, the same applies, right? It's a bunch of marketing dollars up front and you've got to stay the course. Well, it's a bit of both because, okay, so here's the interesting scoop on real estate crowdfunding platforms is that only uh, a percentage of the capital that is, that is invested actually comes from the crowd. Mm. So in other words, uh, I, don't know, I don't think there are any published figures, but you know, each of these sites uh, and each of the companies that have an online presence, a significant percentage of the business that they do is done through traditional off-market syndications. Um, so that means that even though to the outside world, it looks, you would assume that all of the money that is raised comes from you know, the smaller investors. Um, that's absolutely not the case. What these platforms uh, provide is a shop window for institutional investors to be able to buy deals. Because as, as you mentioned earlier, deal flow 
is the most critical component. It's not necessarily finding the capital. It's relatively easy to find capital once you've got that established deal flow. It's sort of, you know, you, you get that, um, once you've got that momentum, then, right. then what happens, yeah, you get the credibility. What happens is your problems change from how do I get my seed capital? It's now, I've got all these people that want the yield that I've been able to demonstrate because, you know, everybody wants yield, but now I can't find enough deals because before I had deals and no money. Now I've got, you know, too much money and no deals. Um, so what the crowdfunding platforms also found themselves solving was a major problem for, you know, multifamily offices and smaller institutional investors who wanted access to these um, deals that traditionally would be off market. And if you can package them up and present them in a platform where everything is managed by one sort of operator, then it becomes a lot easier. So the real estate fund, uh, crowdfunding companies you know, are a mix of uh, consumer, direct consumer finance, but also large percentage of their, uh, of their investment capital comes from um, small and um, you know, medium-sized hedge funds and family offices. And that's interesting and probably something a lot of people don't actually know. And it, again, goes back to that marketing front of, of it has this very glossy image of I can access deals and I can come on here every single time. But to your point, it's the average investor who just jumps on one of those websites is a small percentage of what actually funds a deal versus you know a traditional fund or hedge fund, as you mentioned before. At the moment, but again, um, I, I think if you look at the proliferation of online investment platforms that's everything from fractionalized personal loans such as prosper and lending club all the way to real estate crowdfunding platforms all the way to equity-based crowdfunding now regulation cf regulation crowdfunding has only been around for i don't know two three four years something like that and it takes time because you have to build up the credibility that the companies that someone invested in two or three years ago are actually still here um so I, you know, I think we are going to see more of a shift from, you know, how else do people invest though? I mean, how, how, how do people find deals? Right, exactly. You know, so let's, let's pivot a little bit. Talk about Regulation CF. That was actually the first time I've heard it about Regulation CF. Maybe give a little bit of background on, on how that has come to evolve. Where has it different to the, the, the Jobs Act of 2012? Well, it's all part of. So it was, I can't remember if it's Title Three or Title Four, um, but there was the, the Jobs Act came out and said, okay, we're going to roll this out in stages. Um, and the first stage was uh, we're going to take traditional private placements, which is Regulation D offerings, um, and we're going to create um, a new Regulation D Rule 506C, um, which is the general solicitation rule, which we talked about before. Now, the other um, titles were um, Regulation A+, which I think is Title 4, yep. um, and um, Title 3, which is Regulation CF. Now, Regulation CF was the last one to come out of the gate because obviously there was a lot more structuring that needed to be done. Um, but Regulation CF enabled um, regulated crowdfunding portals. So you had to be, well, you have to be registered with FINRA as a um, regulated crowdfunding portal. And that allows you to offer deals um, that have filed a Form C with the SEC. So rather than a Form D for Regulation D, it's Form C. So you file a Form C, and there's a few other um, hurdles you have to jump over in terms of how you present your accounts. Um, but generally, it's, it's almost like a public offering scaled down mm. where an in, a company can raise up to $1.07 million a year 
from um, non-accredited investors. And what the platforms um, do is they provide the ability for you to invest. So they keep track of who the investors are and the money um, and the escrow accounts that you know, manages the flow. But most importantly, they're able to charge a commission based on the capital raised without having to be registered as a broker dealer. So it's, it's exciting because you've got this new level of um, uh, regulation that allows someone to set up a portal. They have to be regulated by FINRA or registered with FINRA uh, and approved by FINRA. But that allows them to earn commission on deals where they've helped people raise money and they don't have to be a fully fledged broker dealer. Um, and that's again that's only sort of two to three years so we saw a big rush of uh you know companies you know entering the space and again you get that natural attrition so the companies that are left now um are really beginning to demonstrate you know some real success and some real traction in attracting you know large numbers of small investors who want to participate with a few hundred dollars in these you know in these potential unicorns right and this is different to fund of funds, right? Which is, I know, more under the Regulation D, right? Well, a fund, yeah, a Regulation D is is a private placement. So a Regulation D is where um, typically it's used um, where you've got a relatively small number of investors. So there's a cap of 99 people. or, or 90, So you can only have 99 investors in a Regulation D offering. Um, or it depends, you know, so there are other, there are other um, restrictions. So if it's an LLC, there's 99, you know, caveat, do your own research. You know, yep. this is, this is me just trying to remember stuff from years <laughs> ago. Um, but, and there are other issues. So if you get more than a certain number of investors, I think it's 3000, then you have to become a public offering. Uh, and that's where regulation a plus comes in where you can have you know, unlimited numbers of smaller investors. But Regulation D has always been the primary vehicle for private placements. Um, and still today, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars are invested through Regulation D offerings. Um, you know, and, the, you know, hedge funds typically run, um, you know, Regulation D offerings because they have a small number of investors. Got it. Well, mate, I want to now pivot into quantum RE because it's definitely something interesting we were talking about in the green room before we press record here. Do you want to give the listeners a bit of a rundown on how your, your take on single family equity and how to unlock it uh, and maybe what quantum RE is set up to do? Well, I, I think bearing in mind the audience, we can um, get into a bit more sort sure. of technical detail. Yeah. But so quantum RE is a company I set up two and a half years ago. What we do is we enable homeowners to unlock large amounts of capital from the equity in their home without having to borrow money. So that means if you are a homeowner and you don't have to be an owner-occupied, it might be a residential home or a vacation lad. But if you're a homeowner and you have uh, significant equity in your home, we have the ability to invest in that equity without going on title. So we're not co-owners. So we have a, a structure that enables us to pay you a large lump sum up to half a million dollars in exchange for a share of the appreciation in the property. So it's a very different mechanism to debt. And debt is where I lend you money secured against your property. I charge you an interest rate. You pay me back um, you know, month by month or if it's a reverse mortgage, you, know, you pay me back at, uh, you know, at the end. Um, but with our product, it is not a debt product. So what that means is that our underwriting is very different to the underwriting that you would have uh, for a loan. 
And so that means we're able to um, invest in homeowners that have been turned down for a loan by the banks for whatever reason. So you may be in a situation where you have significant equity in your home, but you don't have any income. We can still provide you with you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity-based financing, even though you don't have an income. And so that solves a real problem for people that um, have equity, but either cannot borrow money from the banks or simply do not want to borrow money. And you know, particularly in you know today's economy, where people are finding themselves in positions where they can't borrow money because their employment situation has changed, or the banks have increased the you know credit limit. So you know we help and have helped um, homeowners unlock millions of dollars. Um, you know, precisely in situations where they've been turned down by the banks. And, and talk, talk to me about the, the scale of this across the United States, because you were mentioning to me some figures before we press record again. It's quite a large amount of people who have this built-up equity that can't necessarily go and lock it um, today. Well, let's, the number is just over $18 trillion. So wow. there's $18 trillion, um, according to um, the sort of Fed's figures, of equity in single family homes. Now, some of those homes have one or 2% equity, some of them are own free and clear. So the total amount of equity um, is um, just about 18 trillion. Now, if you sort of drill down, if you look at the amount of equity that's accessible, in other words, you know, people that have 50% or more equity, there are just under 15 million homes in the US where the owners have 50% or more equity. So think of all those people that have been paying off their mortgages for years, have built up this equity position, or people that own their homes free and clear. So the, the amount of accessible equity just in the senior market is, is you know, seven, eight trillion dollars. So um, now let's talk about this in terms of capital stack. So in a commercial transaction, we were talking about this earlier, in a commercial transaction, you have a number of different financing layers. So, you know, you start with uh, senior debt, then you have junior debt, and you might have, you know, two or three layers of junior debt. You have mezzanine, which is a combination of debt and equity. Then you have preferred equity, and then you have equity. And there's all sorts of you know, variations in between. So you have people that have capital that is lent to a commercial enterprise secured against the real estate. Then you have equity investors that have absolutely uh, no, um, no interest payments, their exposure is entirely an equity exposure, but they get normally a higher upside because there's more risk. But you know, the, difference, the difference between debt and equity is you know, fish versus fowl, two very different instruments. In a traditional residential home, at the moment, the only way you can fund or finance a home is through debt. So there are no commercial operations of any scale um, that enable um, there to be some sort of equity participation. There are edge cases where you've got sort of tenancy and common schemes, but they're a tiny fraction of a percentage. So they are statistically non, you know, you know, um, not, not important. Um, so from a homeowner, if you are sitting on half a million dollars of equity, for example, in your million dollar home, to you that represents a concentrated single non-financial, non-liquid, non-cash-flowing asset. So the only way currently that you can access that asset is to borrow against it. So we're changing that model by saying, okay, we have an investment agreement which is structured very similar to an option where we're saying 
we're interested in participating in some of the potential future increase of that property in the same way that if we were taking part in your commercial transaction, you know, we'd be buyers in the equity piece. So we structure the same sort of um, arrangement with the homeowner. So the homeowner gets a lump sum, which can be tax deferred because it's based on a future settlement. So the homeowner gets use of hundred cent dollars and they've got up to 30 years to settle the contract by selling the home or by refinancing us. But in the meantime, as the house appreciates, as the owners of that option, when the homeowner sells, we get a share of that appreciation. And in order to make it compelling for our investors, we get an augmented or a magnified share of that uh, appreciation compared to the amount of investment that we initially made. So from an investment perspective, it's compelling because I get a share of the upside. Um, From the homeowner's perspective, it's compelling too because I get a cash lump sum that I can spend on whatever I want because it's not debt guess what? There's no monthly payments. There's no interest. It doesn't appear on my credit report as as debt. And I can use the money for whatever I want. And that could be to fund another real estate transaction, or it could be simply to pay off some expensive credit card debt. It's a very interesting model because I've got a couple of questions for you on this. So the first question is from an investment side of view, who's attracted to these types of deals? Because without that, so everyone wants cash flow. It seems that everyone cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. Who are those people who just want to you know, set, place it and forget it and come back to it in you know, 20, 30 years' time? Well, again, let's look at the scale of the market. So again, it's an $18 trillion marketplace. So this is not a niche play. So that means potentially it's interesting to large pension funds, endowment funds, long-term capital plays um, who are looking for an inflation hedge or who have a certain capital allocation that is designed to be invested in these sort of long-term foundational investments. So our investments represent a structurally leveraged return on the house price index. Now, because of the returns that our investors get, they don't just get the same return. They're almost in a preferred equity position. So they get a better return than the equity players. Um, And there's there's an agreement that the homeowner signs, which makes that very clear what that is. but because of that, that means that the investors can see if you can, if you have the ability to forecast what the house price index is likely to be, then that means that you, you can very clearly show what the likely return is going to be based on this asset class because it's a highly distributed asset class. So all of these investments are individual properties. So you're, you don't have that concentration risk. You're also able to invest across different geographies different economies throughout the United States. And and what you're getting is a fairly stable um, uh, inflation hedge with that sort of, you know, structurally leveraged upside. So from an an investor's perspective, if you are not, if cash flow or cash pay is not important, this is a fabulous investment that traditionally has outperformed, um, you know, many of the comparable investments. So it's not correlated to stock market returns. It has a very low volatility. Um, it has a very low drawdown compared to other investments. Um, so as an asset class, it's, it's a very solid uh, investment. But my final point is that the average duration of these contracts is not 30 years. So mm-hmm. what we're seeing is that um, these contracts tend to um, uh, you know, sort of terminate or they tend to be um, uh, ter- finalized 
when the house is sold and houses are normally sold, you know, every sort of five to seven years. Mm-hmm. So, so it follows that same life cycle. So the actual duration of these contracts is not terribly long. So the homeowner, the investors are likely to get their capital back um, much earlier than that uh, full 30 year term. And, and you mentioned earlier, um, it sounds like you're going out to massive you said endowment funds and pension funds that are mitigating their risk over, Many, many deals. I'm, I'm assuming it's hundreds of deals. Do you take on the individual investor for a one-on-one type of deal, or is it just purely those big, the big players? Well, I think the yeah. So our plan is to do this in stages. So the first stage is to prime the pumps with institutional capital because that gives you the the big hammer. Mm-hmm. So that gives us the ability to go out and originate large numbers of transactions. Now, part of our roadmap is to leverage this sort of crowdfunding. Um, ability and to leverage all the regulations that allow that to say, okay, we have the ability to originate these transactions. Let's see if if these want to be funded by the crowd as well. So on one hand, we'll have the institutional capital, but on the other side, we want to make these investments available to um, smaller investors and it'll be accredited investors to start. And then as we change the regulations under which we operate, uh, we expect to be able to offer this to non-accredited investors under Regulation A+. So our roadmap, our plan is, first of all, to make these available to institutions, which they are right now. Secondly, to make them available to small investors. So someone with literally a few hundred dollars will be able to buy a fraction of one of these home equity agreements. Our longer term strategy, which is sort of two to three years, is to create a secondary market, which is where people can buy and sell these fractionalized interests. And the interesting thing is that when it comes to pricing, um, every month we plan to reprice these agreements based on movement in the underlying house price index. So so we can reprice these uh, contracts every month and you'll be able to see if this agreement's gone up in value, if it has, you could potentially put it up for sale. You could sell some or all of your investments. So our plan is to make home equity accessible, investable, and tradable. So we're already, you know, um, knee deep in phase one. Um, phase two, which is this uh, investable to a wider audience, we're hoping to um, start that process uh, in the middle of next year. Well, and it goes back to your point before about the, the crowdfunding statement that a uh, a small percentage of crowdfunding websites actually are funded through the individuals. It's actually backstopped with the institution. And I think it seems like that's the, the playbook, right? You go out, you, you get your book of business of institutional guys, whatever the, the particular widget is, in, in your case, it's very niche to unlocking single family house equity uh, and then proving the concept and then knowing that you can offer a portion of the offering to the smaller investors who want to get a piece of the a piece of the action uh, alongside the, these these bigger institutional groups is that, is that a kind of a summary? It is, but I think what's happening though is that the the numbers are changing. So um, the um, the ratio between institutional and um, I suppose commercial or consumer, retail. yeah, retail finance, it's not static. So it's not always going to be that ratio. Right. Historically, it's been in favour of institutions. Um, that's only because. The average consumer, it takes time to build that type of cr- uh, trust and credibility uh, up. And I think where we are now is we're seeing, you know, more and more platforms have been established for uh, a number of years now. So there is that trust and credibility. Mm. And because of that, we will see a shift. Um, well, one of two things will happen. Either you'll see a rebalancing, so there'll be more 
consumer finance as opposed to institution. I think what's actually going to happen is the overall bucket's going to expand. So more and more capital is going to go in, more from institutions and more from um, you know consumer finance because it's just so easy to add you know as technology um, you know sort of evolves. On, <laughs> evolves. Thank you. It's it's. Um, it's a lot easier to have platforms that now speak to multiple platforms. You know, if you think about it from um, you know, companies like Robinhood, for example, that give you access to a whole range of different investments, whether it be crypto investments or fiat investments or shares, where you can build portfolios of really bespoke combinations of publicly traded entities and privately traded entities. So I think we have all of that to look forward to. So, um, and again, we're just at the very beginning of all of this. The Jobs Act sort of started it but we're now beginning to see the flywheel you know pick up its own momentum it's very interesting and i'm I'm, it's such an incredible part or wave to be a part of right you're riding that wave of of the jobs act and into the 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 future and beyond and i think you're correct that it's going to to get bigger and bigger as people become more and more used to the generations get older they get more used to investing online and away from maybe not necessarily the mano mano probably never stop but you know, with the large check sizes, but the the, the smaller guys getting involved uh, in in what we call alternative investments uh, outside the stock market is only going to continue to grow, and the, the appetite is going to continue to grow. Um, on the on the other side of the piece, how do you, what are you qualifying the, the the houses for? How do you get the sort of the pipeline full with product and the deals? And is there a specific criteria? I'm sure you, I'm assuming you're looking at high appreciation markets, maybe like the coastal markets, in, in order to, 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 to tap into that equity. Well, the answer is um, yes. Um, it is exactly that. So it's it's a combination. So we're underwriting houses primarily in markets where there is likely to be house price appreciation. So uh, we do operate um, – in 32 states. So we are able to offer programs in 32 states. Um, Now, that's probably not going to increase because there are a number of states where, unfortunately, you simply don't get the sort of appreciation that you get in other states. Um, So we're not not focused on pure um, appreciation such as the coastal cities in California, for example, where, you know, it's a much broader brush than that. Um, But what we're looking for is homes where the homeowner normally has around um, you know, 40, 50% equity in the homes. So we're looking for homeowners that already have a significant equity position. Uh, and we will invest up to 20% of the current value of the home. And the maximum that we will go to, including any existing uh, leverage on the home, is 70%. So after our investment, the homeowner um, will always be left with you know, 30% or more equity in the home. So this is absolutely not a situation where we're over leveraging homeowners. Um, what we're doing is we're providing homeowners with the ability to move money out of their equity account into their bank account. So it's really just, it's a, um, if you think about it that way, but we do make sure that we leave the homeowner with significant ownership in the property. And again, the way our instruments work is that it's not, uh, we don't sit on title as an owner, so it's not a tenancy in common. It doesn't trigger uh, any uh, property tax revaluations. Um, it's, it's a personal contract with us and the homeowner. It is protected by a lien on title, mm-hmm. so we are part of the escrow process. So we do sit in a junior position, um, so that lien helps protect our investment, but um, you know, we're not there um, as someone who's going to insist that you 
lend us your spare bedroom one afternoon. <laughs> and I assume you'd have caveats in and around they can't go and place additional debt on yeah. top of that, right? That's And again, that's, that's the primary caveat, which is that our position is an equity-based position. So what you cannot do is increase the leverage without our permission. Right. And we do allow that as long as... The level, you know, the equity position that we've got is within that seventy percent tolerance. Yep, love it. Uh, and obviously, if you want to refinance, that's not normally a problem. But because we sit there as a lien holder, that gives us the ability to protect our position. But it does make sense, obviously, that we wouldn't want a homeowners to be able to leverage the home so that our our position is, uh, you know, is, is weakened. I love it, love it, mate. Well, look, it sounds like you've got such an incredible future ahead, and I love the iterations that you've come through 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 crowd venture, and, and I encourage those people. Uh, who haven't listened to episode number, I think it was 26 or 23, go back and have a listen to that one and, and interesting around your explanation, Matthew, on the Jobs Act and how it's evolved, coming now full circle four years later to, to, to talk about the evolution of it and into a such a niche market that you've identified with quantum RE. I think it's, it's quite fascinating. It is. And also, it's actually slightly worrying because if you can actually go back, it's like, do you remember you said this four years ago? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I did believe it at the time, but, you know, it's, it's well, amazing. And, and you know, that's, how, and that's, it, you know I, I do remember that comment about the marketing. You know, it's a marketing company, you know, crowdfunding platforms. I remember that. It came, came to my mind as, as I'm talking to you because I vividly remember you saying that there's just a ton of marketing dollars in the beginning to get that trust. I, I would just like to beg forgiveness from the <laughs> listeners if, you know, if I did get most of it wrong, you know, it's because my 2020 vision, you know, forward looking lenses were, you know, at the menders that day. Well, well in that, that's a segue sort of into so summarizing and, and the wrapping up this show is what is the vision for the next couple of years? It's changed so significantly in the last four years. And I think that's the beauty of being an entrepreneur. But, but what do you, do, you, do you have a crystal ball? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's evolved. So I think the important thing is that what we've been involved in has been this sort of step-by-step evolution. I'm always, um, you know, change is something that sort of makes me shudder because I think, well, you know, what are you doing? Are you doing this or that? So I think what we've done is um, it's been an evolution. So, you know, thank goodness for that. So it's not so much a pivot, but it's like, well, okay, this is where this is taking us. It's all along the same sort of path. So what we've done is we've been able to build on all of the experiences along the way. Um, and, but you're right, the business is, is, is different now to what it was, but it has, you know, 99.762% of the same, you know, ingredients. Um, but I think going forwards, the demand for cash is going to get greater and greater because the uncertainty that's been created by COVID, the big thing that's changed is COVID. So COVID has really lifted the lid on a lot of things that we thought were sacred um, and um, has made us feel very nervous about things that previously we we felt very safe with or very very secure with. And home equity is one of those things that previously people were uh, content to have it sit there and accrue without even thinking about touching it. Now, they don't feel anywhere near as confident that their houses are going to be worth something predictable. And so they're much more willing to look at that. And because of that, that is going to give birth to a significant increase in the types of alternative funding arrangements for homeowners. And so my vision for the future is that we will see more and more options and a greater adoption of funding, the sort of funding that we provide, which is alternative equity-based funding, because there's such an untapped amount of equity that needs to be, um, uh, you know, needs to be addressed. And there is such an inherent demand from homeowners. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's positive because this 
change that's been um, set about by COVID, um, you know, is going to create a lot of disruption and, and a lot of things that previously um, we took for granted, I think, um, are, are going to change. And it's going to be to the benefit, um, significant benefit uh, of the homeowner and, and, and the consumer um, generally. Well, I, I do love what you just said there from, and I agree with your sentiments on the, the second part of that statement, but the first part of you're not changing, you're pivoting. And that's, we're all doing that as business owners, right? We're all pivoting over time. And if you're not pivoting, if you're not changing, then you're, you're failing, right? And, and it's sort of iterating. I think, yeah. I think the word I love is iterating yep. because you're, you're, you're moving. I mean, uh, you know, iterating, you know, as in, uh, it comes from the Latin word to run, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, you know, the more, the more momentum you have, the more, fine-tuning there is the more you listen to what's happening out there and you change your business model because your business model hasn't you know you've evolved over the last four years otherwise you wouldn't get anywhere um, <laughs> exactly. so that's i think that's uh, that's what we all do that's what we all have to do is is you know listen to what's happening and and you know tweak everything to make sure that we're always you know in tune exactly 100 percent Mate, at the end of every show, if you do remember, we'd like to do the lightning round. It's called the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Oh God, I completely forgot about that. No, so, <laughs> I'll, I'll remind you of the question. Judicious use of the edit button is required, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I remember I asked these five questions. It's the same five questions, just with sort of quick, sharp answers uh, to these five questions that I ask all my guests. So let's get into it. The number one question, or well, the first question I should say is, what's your daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Uh, just get out of the office. Okay. So what I used to do is get up, um, you know, rub my eyes and immediately start trying to focus on my computer to see what was happening. Um, so that's a, a really stupid thing to do. So the first thing to do is just get out of the house, go for a walk, um, you know, just do some, um, you know, what, what is that expression? Exercise. Physical exercise. <laughs> there you go. So no, I mean, I love that. And I, I swore that I would never be one of those people that, that's, um, would talk about the benefits of you know breathing fresh air in the morning but actually it's quite a good idea so so you know my habit is just get out and go for a walk get have half an hour thinking time um rather than just you know throwing yourself straight into the sort of the you know the the ele- electronic abyss yeah completely agree it's such a it's such a drag and it can drag down in your day uh if you don't have that time in the morning for yourself love it uh question number two who's been the most influential person in your career um Okay, so I have a friend, um, Stephen Partridge Hicks. There you go. You've been named. Um, so I've known him for probably twenty years. A hugely successful banker, um, and um, just generally one of the smartest people um, that um, I've ever met. Uh, one of the most, you know, kind, generous. It's the whole sort of combination. So uh, I am still, you know, insanely envious um, of everything that uh, that he's done. Um, but he does um, drive me forward because. You know, I I I, I want to be like him. I want to be successful like him. I want to, you know, not because I want the things that he has, but but you know, I want to do a good job. I want to, you know, I want to um, leave a legacy. I, I, exactly. You want to build something. I mean, um, so I, I've avoided people like you know Richard Branson and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I've met the guys; they're great. I never knew them um, knew them well. Um, so you only get to see the veneer. I mean, I worked with him for you know a few years, but you um, so. You know, I have a someone that no one ever knows, but uh, he he was a, a you know very very successful you know UK based banker, still one of my closest friends. Um, 
absolutely useless information to anyone listening here who won't know him, but but there you are. Love it. Well, it's, it's all personal, mate. That's the, that's the beauty of this show. Uh, question number three, what is the most influential tool that you use on a daily basis? When I say tool, it could be a physical tool like a phone or a journal, or it could be a, a digital tool like a piece of software that you can't run your business without. What is it? It's this. It's a book. Okay, so... <laughs> It's, I mean, and I'm, I'm not trying to be funny because, I mean, everyone's got the, you know, the business. I've tried all these various different, um, but I just like writing stuff down. I like the connection of, um, you know, thinking something and just the art of, you know, trying to get this pen to sort of, you know, write something that I can read the following morning. <laughs> um, but it is therapeutic. It's, um, it's analog. Um, and it has so many benefits because it's not screen based. So I, you know, I write stuff down. This is what I want to do today. And even though I'm repeating most of what I had yesterday, because one of those days where you didn't get anything done, it's, it's just the formation of the letters and the putting of the ink on the paper that creates this sort of, um, this bond with you in the book that you have to do what you've written down there. 100%. 100%. I got exactly the same thing. If anyone's watching, it's uh, pages and pages of notes. I accidentally, I bought 50 copies of these things to give away, but I wrote the wrong, I misspelled something on the front cover, so I have to use them myself. But it's great. It's the, the art of writing something down. And I really get a, a kick out of it as a small little win. The crossing it off is, is yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. The, the, the crossing and you can off. And you, you can do like wavy line crosses yes. or double crosses <laughs> or, or, a, or a check or, you yep, know, it's like. Exactly, exactly. Love it, love it. Uh, question number four as we wrap up here. In one sentence, what's been the biggest failure in your career? What did you learn from that failure? I was just saying no when I should have said yes. Mm. You know, just, you know, people, you know, go, oh, no, no, I, could, I couldn't possibly do that. No, it's not for me. Or, or no, uh, I'm not the right person to do that. Or, um, or no, it'd be too much. You know, just say yes to everything and then figure out how to do it afterwards. <laughs> Fake it till you make it, right? <laughs> well, no, not, no, 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 no. The, actually, the opposite. No, mm. not oh, say sorry. yes, you can do things. I mean, that's very different. That's, no, that's, no, I, that's something I, I would not do. I mean, if you can't do something, then obviously don't tell someone you can. But if someone offers you something, or like an opportunity, right. Got it. Um, I've turned so much stuff down because, Maybe I didn't have the confidence in myself or maybe I didn't have the far-sightedness to see where it was going to go. Um, so if people, if someone offers you an opportunity, the answer should always be yes. And then figure out later on in the day, if it's not something you want, you can always back out afterwards. But don't turn stuff down because of the way you think it's going to turn out. Right. You know, let it take its course and, you know, maybe make a decision a bit further on. So I, my regrets is I've turned stuff down, which I shouldn't have done, um, you know, um, for, for a number of reasons. And it's not a regret. It's just, I should, you know, I'm much, I'm, I'm much older now. So I'm much more open-minded and, <laughs> you know, and I don't, you know, I realize that I'm really nowhere near as good as I used to think I was. Um, and so because of that, you, you tend to sort of, um, I'm much more open-minded to the abilities of other people and the offers that other people are making. And so yes is now my usual expression. Well, I think um, you hit the nail on the head there was it's the betting, the, the being okay to bet on yourself that you can do it, right? And that's the self-doubt that comes into it. There's a whole other topic, but you know, when you yeah, say yeah, no, so, it's like, so oh, I'm so, self, of, yeah, 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 so yes. self-deprecating. No, I can't do that. I could never possibly do that. And you're like, no, you can. You just don't 
go figure it out once you say that yes. You don't know how to do it. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, it's a pathway. Like as you take one step, the next step becomes clear mm-hmm. sometimes. Or you're worried about the failure or the, the judgment or whatever it might be. And so you always say no and not actually say yes and don't live. You start pushing the boundaries of what you're comfortable doing. Uh, and yeah, that's, and, that's and the easiest way to fix that is just to say yes. You know, Correct. if someone offers you, so to go, yes. <laughs> sure, let's do it. Love yeah. it. Last question, mate, is where can people reach you to continue the conversation that want to be in your sphere? Where do they go? Two places right now. The first is quantumre. So everything is there, um, you know, all of our press contact details, everything about the company, how to apply to get equity from your home. So that's Q-U-A-N-T-M-R-E, quantumre.com. We're also raising capital on Republic. So if you want to own a piece of quantumre, uh, our crowdfunding, crowdfunding campaign is live until the end of September. Um, so you can go to republic.co um, and then search for quantumre and we'll be there. So if you um, if you fancy owning a piece, um, and uh, if you would like me to be, uh, you know, entirely, uh, um, you know, subject to your wills as a shareholder in the company, um, then uh, you know, please, you know, in, in, invest um, generously um, uh, on the crowdfunding side. Love it, love it, mate. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show once again. You're a good friend of the show. Um, I just want to quickly summarize what some of the things I took away from today's show. I think the biggest one is pivoting. Um, knowing, being knowing you for so many years now and having the, the, the history of getting to know one another, I think it's a tip of the hat to you to uh, be malleable in your approach to business and knowing when to change and be that surfer on that wave and cha- and ride it You know, as things yes. come up. I think it's really important as entrepreneurs to never stop changing, never stop pivoting, never stop evolving because once you do stop that you will then ultimately be surpassed by technology or something else that will come and you know consume you and and that's the bit that's the, we're in the business of continuing to evolve and i think that's probably the number one thing i've taken away from today's show great thank you and i think it's yeah and that's it you know and, and i think that's the uh you know life is actually a lot simpler as you get older you realize actually it's just it's not actually that complicated you just gotta you know you just gotta do a few simple things well exactly uh, if only we knew what they were. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and if only we had a, a somewhere to crystal ball to look ahead and, and make those decisions. Or an instruction manual or something. I'm exactly. still searching. Exactly. Well, mate, look, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day. Enjoy the rest of your My week pleasure. and we'll catch up very, thank very you. soon. Lovely, Reed. Thank you for having me on. It's been marvelous. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with a really good friend of the show, Matthew Sullivan. If you do want to check out any of his stuff, please head over to quantumre.com. Remember, he is raising capital for uh, equity in his business. So if you're interested in that, go over to uh, republic.com, I think it is, uh, and check out all the offerings over there. I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to continue to grow your financial IQ. If you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a five-star review on iTunes. And we're going to do it all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave. Go give life a crack.